You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine dining out 100,000 years ago during the Paleolithic era. Hey, Grog, thanks for meeting me at Grub. These restaurants with one-word names are all the rage, or will be. Okay, there weren't restaurants in the Stone Age, but stay with us. Hmm. I'll have a seed and red berry salad, some meat, maybe squirrel carpaccio. Light meal for me. Two raw grouse eggs, acorns, oh, and a side of larvae. Ooh, these stone menus are heavy. And today, how we eat? Excuse me, can I ask you, uh, what, what's your name? Eric. Eric, uh, what are you eating there? It's a hot pastrami with cheese. Hot pastrami with cheese. And, and what is it? Is that a bread or what? That's a Asiago roll. Y- you seem to have a side there. Chips and a vitamin water. And, and what about you? Simon, is it? Yeah, that's right. Well, well, describe what you got there. Turkey sandwich. And then the inside, I got a bacon, you know. I got a cheese, you know. I also ordered chips to put aside. Yeah. And, and you don't find that that bread disagrees with your body chemistry or anything like that? Not really. <laughs> My name is Dan Gonzalez, and I'm uh, having a turkey club sandwich with uh, pepper jack cheese, bacon, and it's delicious. This is what you eat every day, and you've been doing it for a while. No, I don't eat this every day. No, no, not every day. No, no, no. I wouldn't be looking as good as I do right now. <laughs> but uh, it, is, it is delicious. Imagine forgoing the bread and the mayonnaise and the chips that these guys are eating and dining on what our caveman ancestors ate 100,000 years ago. Would that be a diet that's better attuned to our bodies? Well, some people say yes. Although others say that a diet for humans that, you know, was appropriate in the Stone Age is not appropriate for those who are living in the Space Age. I'm Seth Shostak, headed back to this studio. Let me uh, grab my burger and soda here. And I'm Molly Bentley. This is our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science Skeptic Check, where we separate fact from fiction and ask why we believe what we do. This episode, The Paleo Diet, is it really a better way to eat today? Well, it's at least popular now, and it does seem reasonable that we should be eating what our ancestors ate for millions of years. After all, the Paleolithic era, that extended from about mm, 2 million years ago to roughly 10,000 years ago, and that includes 95% of all human history. Homo sapiens have been stomping about the planet for the last 200,000 years. And some of what those diners at Rogers Deli here in Mountain View were eating were modern variations of what our caveman ancestors might have munched on. You know, some meat, some parts of the vitamin water, mainly the water part. But our Stone Age ancestors would not have eaten bread or chips because there was no refined flour, and cheese would have been out too. There were no dairy farms. Their diet did include a lot of vegetables and fruits, so maybe we should all go paleo. And as one of the diners boasted at Roger's Deli, he wants to be fit and look good. Well, we all want that, and we want to be healthy. And everyone seems to agree that it matters what we eat. And for the man behind the paleo diet, Lauren Cordain, Well, he figures it's a corrective to the excesses of our modern-day eating habits. Hang on, let me finish my soda here. We consume too much sugar, salt, and fat, and we are fatter. Dr. Cordain is a professor of health and exercise science at Colorado State University, and he says the paleo diet is a lot of what our modern menu is not. 
just about anything that you could find in your local supermarket that's not processed foods, that's fresh fruits, vegetables, uh, meats, eggs, seafood, fish, uh, nuts, and seeds. So it's it's not that uh, I would be served exotica. It's just that I would be served a selection of things. Yeah, you can be served. You can order in restaurants and get pretty close to eating paleo. And this is contemporary paleo. Obviously, we're emulating the characteristics of uh, our Stone Age ancestors. We can't exactly duplicate them, but by mimicking uh, the food groups that they ate, we can do pretty well in our local supermarket. Okay, well, what would I not find at the table? I mean, you said no processed foods. Maybe you could give me uh, some examples of things that we eat a lot of, generally speaking, that are processed that wouldn't make it onto the paleo menu. Well, let me give you, for instance, um, we did a, uh, a study we published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and we analyzed the diets of the average American, and it turns out that 70% of the calories comes from four foods. They come from refined sugars, refined grains, refined vegetable oils, and dairy products. So every single day of your life, if you're an average American, 70% of your calories come from those same four foods. Now we combine them and we call them cookies and cakes and pizza and chips and uh, what have you, but uh, those four foods are the balance of the typical American diet. And with the paleo diet, we're trying to get people away from those four foods and get them into healthy living foods, fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, uh, healthy meats, uh, seafood, fish. Well, a lot of that sounds like the, uh, if you will, conventional wisdom, you know, eat more of, uh, fruits and veggies, and, and normally they say is go easy on the red meats and that sort of thing. What distinguishes the paleo diet from this uh, sort of uh, background advice that everybody seems to get all the time? Well, I think, you know, what we're trying to do is we're looking at the diets of our Stone Age ancestors, and clearly they've been around for about two and a half million years and the environment that they lived in or what shaped our current genome. And if we go back two and a half million years, uh, our ancestors never consumed dairy products, nor did they ever eat uh, cereal grains. And so those would be the only two parts of this diet that most nutritionists might have trouble with. But actually, that's a, a good thing by getting rid of cereal grains. Cereal grains are uh, much uh, less nutritionally dense than either fruits, vegetables, meats, or se uh, seafood and fish. And to be honest with you, dairy products, except for calcium, uh, is a nutritional lightweight as well and doesn't fare <clears throat> uh, very well at all when compared to fresh fruits, vegetables, uh, meats, and fish. So the motivation here, or should I say the rationale for the paleo diet is that we've been wired up by evolution by a couple of million years of evolution, to eat what these Stone Age ancestors ate. I mean, that, that's the idea, right? That's right. And what we found, and many scientists around the world have found, is that when we introduce processed foods, refined sugars, refined grains, refined vegetable oils, they have nutritional characteristics that are discordant with our genome. And when we have discordance between our environment in our genome, it typically, whether you're a human or any other animal, it produces uh, uh, disease and ill health. Is there good evidence that uh, these hunter-gatherers who were enjoying the paleo diet back when they were paleo were especially healthy or, or perhaps more healthy than we are? Yeah, we've actually published a number of scientific papers in our group. We have an internationally based group with scientists, anthropologists, and physicians from all over the world. And uh, our colleagues have gone into the field and studied, studied contemporary uh, hunter-gatherers. Now, what they do have is, uh, that, well, what they don't have is they don't have the diseases that afflict us all, the chronic diseases of civilization, the metabolic syndrome, overweight, obesity, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and so forth. Those symptoms afflict 70% or more of our society. Those diseases and symptoms are basically non-existent in hunter-gatherer societies. And, and we've outlined them in, in, in the literature over the last 100 years, historically studied hunter-gatherers. So you're absolutely right, is that uh, they were uh, free of, of the chronic diseases that plague us, but they got other things. So they might be dying of snake bite. They broke their leg with a compound fracture. There was no modern medicine to fix it. There were no antibiotics and and what have you, but uh, 
what we're advocating is is to take the best of their world and leave the worst behind. So let's follow their dietary patterns, maybe some of their exercise patterns, and take advantage of modern medicine and health care. But they may have been healthier, but could they simply have been healthier on the basis of the fact that they didn't live very long? <laughs> I mean, the you know, that's, that's, uh, that, that question is, is very intuitive, and many people come up with it. And as a matter of fact, uh, it's so intuitive that uh, our, my colleagues and I have written at least two papers suggesting that. Now, we do find people that make it to their 50s, 60s, and 70s and beyond, but what we don't find is we don't find these chronic diseases that take us all out uh, as we progress. Lauren, you're the founder of the paleo diet. Uh, I guess maybe the, <laughs> our ancestors who ate it can be said to be the true founders. I don't know. But how did your discovery come about? I mean, how, how did you... Well, first off, I, you know, uh, that's flattering that uh, maybe that's the, the, my image in, in the popular press and what have you. But uh, I don't think any single person founded this concept. This concept goes all the way back to Darwin, the notion of uh, natural selection through <clears throat> evolution through natural selection. And I, I would have to say that one of the major names that was involved in starting this whole thing is Dr. Boyd Eaton at Emory University. He's still alive, and he's, he's in his 70s. He was my mentor, and he really got this whole concept going in the mid-'80s, an article he published in New England Journal of Medicine. And so he, he kind of got the ball rolling, but it goes back way before him. There was many other scientists who were thinking about this. And I just happened to be at the right place at the right time in early 2000 when I published my book. And uh, so my name gets brought up. But there are literally thousands of people and scientists, both lay and professional, that have been responsible for bringing this thing to kind of the worldwide phenomena that has become in the last three years. The paleo diet is high on protein, uh, not so high on refined grains and so forth. I mean, you know, lots of meat and eggs. That sounds kind of tasty, actually. But on the other hand, could we feed the world if we were required to feed them all that kind of a diet? No, and that's really what's kind of ironic about this whole concept is the diet that our species is genetically adapted to. Now most people in the world can't afford it. Now, having said that, uh, Western people, people in the United States, Europe, and and most Westernized societies, uh, they pretty much can afford to eat uh, what they would like. And uh, so what they do eat are 70% of their calories, <laughs> those same four food groups, and it costs enormous uh, amounts for health care and uh, medical uh, care and what have you. So we can change our diets in the Western world, and we can eat closer to the way that our ancestors did. Unfortunately, many of the people in the world simply cannot. Finally, Lauren, when you invite people over for dinner, <laughs> I assume you do that. What do you serve? <laughs> of do, course do, I do. What do you think I am, a hermit? <laughs> you, you serve them the paleo diet. Well, of course we do. You know, we practice what we we preach, and uh, you know, you don't offer your guests when they come over cigarettes or things that are going to hurt their health. You want to, you know, give them tasty food, which we do, and. I think that uh, you can consume this type of diet and not even know that you're doing it because, you know, you don't have to have refined sugars. You don't have to have salt in everything. You don't have to have processed foods. You know, what's wrong with uh, some grilled salmon uh, on your barbecue along with some steamed broccoli and a nice big salad and maybe a, a bowl of blackberries for dessert? Doesn't that sound pretty good? Sounds pretty good. Lauren Cordain, thank you so very much for talking with me. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed doing this interview. Lauren Cordain is a professor of health and exercise science at Colorado State University, and he has helped shape the modern-day paleo diet. His book, The Paleo Diet. Well, who's going to argue with eating more fresh fruits and, and, and seeds and stuff like that? The intrinsic appeal of this whole idea is that, look, you know, for millions of years, we were wired up to eat the paleo diet by definition. Now we all succumb to cancer or diabetes or heart disease, and, and these guys didn't. So it's very tempting to think that this might be the reason. And if we could only revert to that earlier dining style, we wouldn't get sick. And we'll look more closely at that idea of whether we are wired for the paleo diet a little bit later.
Perhaps the paleo diet is a fad. If it is, it's not the first. Some of today's fashionable celebrity diets were first followed by monks in the Middle Ages. That's next. It's Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking from Big Picture Science. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Lauren Cordain is a pioneer of the paleo diet movement, but he's not the only one promoting hunter-gatherer cuisine. A quick search turns up dozens of books. The Paleo Diet Solution, Practical Paleo, Paleo Lunches, Paleo Treats, Primal Cravings, Your Favorite Foods Made Paleo. Well, that's just to name a few. The paleo lifestyle is an industry unto itself. I was in the grocery store recently, and I found that the salad bar had been transformed. It now has this sign above it that says Paleo Bar, and it includes a drawing of a caveman flexing his muscles and then a line of the books on either side, the books that were just mentioned. One of the daily specials, Paleo Cabbage Almond Crunch. It was kind of a cabbage coleslaw. It was actually delicious. And we posted a shot of the paleo bar on our website at bigpicturescience.org. Okay, so the paleo diet has all the hallmarks of a fad. But before we look closer at its merits, it's worth pointing out that the idea of turning to special diets for reasons of economy, health, or even spiritual need is not so new. It's been done before. Hundreds of years ago, your local European monastery, hardly a hotbed of trendy nutrition, was a locus of unconventional dining behavior. According to Andrew Yotishki, a professor of medieval history at Lancaster University, monks had a regimen that called for eating five days and then fasting for two. It was a way to cleanse the mind and the body. Okay, so fast forward a few hundred years, and in the news today are reports of celebrities, but not only celebrities, following what's called the 5-2 diet, for five days on and two days off, otherwise known as dodo, day on, day off. But as Dr. Yotishki says, the monks were the early adopters. But when they did eat, well, it wasn't exactly a feast. The basis of the monastic diet is very simple food. Bread was the staple. So all across Western Europe and the Mediterranean world, bread or grain forms the basis of the monastic diet. And then on top of that, vegetables, beans, basically, and in different parts of the European and, and the Mediterranean world, the kind of pulses would be different. So in the Middle East, chickpeas are very popular, whereas in Western Europe, it'd be more likely to be broad beans. But basically... The monastic diet is about moderation. It is about not overeating, but also it's about not eating food that takes time and effort to prepare, that isn't special in any kind of way. So if I were invited to dinner at the monastery where these monks mm. were dining, you know, and I say pass the bread, they're, they're passing half the meal when they pass the bread and the other half are the beans. That's it? <laughs> in theory, that's more or less it. Now, in Western Europe, most monks followed the rule of Benedict, and that's a, a formula for living that goes back to the 6th century. And Benedict's rule specifies the amount of bread that was to be eaten every day by each monk. It's a pound of bread per day and a pint of beans. They were vegetarians, so there would be no meat. There might be some fish. And on, on special feast days, the feasts of particular saints, particularly the patron saint of the monastery, there would be some sort of special dishes. But the basis was a kind of soup or stew made out of beans and vegetables. 
these guys were not having this sort of austerity attitude. That wasn't because they were trying to lose weight, of course. This was just part of the job description, right? If you're a monk, the basis of the monastic life is poverty, obedience, and chastity, self-control, living in moderation. So it's very much part of the job description. What about the fact that they would eat for five days and then fast for two days? They're not fasting completely. The fast days would still see bread and water on the table. So the fast days, they're still getting something to, to keep them ticking over, as it were. Ticking over. I mean, it doesn't sound like they'd be <laughs> tipping over. <laughs> well, well, today, this 5-2 diet, that's certainly popular in some quarters. Is there any connection, really, to what celebrities might be doing when they adopt this diet and the monks of hundreds of years ago? Or is this just a newly, if you will, reinvented idea? Well, I think it's a newly reinvented idea. I don't imagine that the 5-2 diet's based in any way directly on monastic customs. However, I think there is probably something inherent in this that they, you know, the, the body needs sort of downtime, as it were, from eating after a certain period of time. So I imagine it actually makes quite a lot of sense. We also have to remember that for the first few hundred years of monasticism, what monks are eating is actually probably a fair reflection of what most people outside monasteries are also eating. So we're talking about a society where there isn't a lot of plenty, where there aren't huge food surpluses. And the change that comes in in the 1100s, that coincides with the availability of more food, both locally grown foodstuffs and imported food through long-distance trade. So until the 1100s, although the monastic diet looks pretty barren and, and unappealing to us, uh, it's probably a fair reflection of what most people were eating as well. Any idea of how healthy these guys were? Is there, you know, any way to know whether they were kind of you know, just falling asleep all the time or, you know, dying young or anything like that? Or were they, you know, fit and vigorous? Well, there's been quite a lot of research done on uh, food values in the monastic diet so we know quite a lot, for example, about the diet and the connection between health and diet at Westminster Abbey in the 14th and 15th centuries. And they seem to have been absorbing quite a lot of calories. Most of their diet seems to be in the form of carbohydrate, and a lot of them seem to be living to a ripe old age. Is there any modern reason to think that this kind of a diet where you eat considerably less on two days of the week, that that might be a good idea, at least for our health, if not for the restaurant trade? <laughs> well, part of the thinking behind eating less for a couple of days a week was to sharpen up the mental faculties. The idea that your, your intellect is more finely honed, you can concentrate more if you're not overfed the whole time. Today, Andrew, there's also the paleo diet. It doesn't involve fasting two-sevenths of the week, but maybe it bears some resemblance, possibly, to the 5-2 diet, because I could imagine that our paleolithic ancestors didn't find abundant food all of the time either. That's true. I think when we talk about the monastic diet, it's more controlled. And so it's not the 5-2 the diet isn't a function of the fact that they can't find enough food uh, for a couple of days a week. It is instituted more as a discipline to try and control the body, to try and impose the sort of domination of the will over the body. I should say that one of the reasons that uh, monastic, monastic writers gave for keeping a very simple diet and for fasting at certain times was that it was thought in particular to control lust so it's, it's supposed to take the edge off monks' sexual appetites. That sounds like the exact same excuse they used for feeding us poorly at college, actually. <laughs> I, I don't know that it's true. If I were to join some religious order today, would I be better fed than uh, a thousand years ago? You would be better fed, but the principles, I think, would remain the same. That one doesn't eat for the sake of eating that one can enjoy one's food, but one should eat very simply, that one should eat as far as possible naturally, in other words, food that is, is grown specifically for the purpose, that one should not seek to flavor one's food excessively or to introduce complexity of taste that, that masks the original 
uh, nature of the food and that it should be cooked as simply as, as possible. So there's, there's an emphasis on freshness and simplicity. And in many ways, I think the principles behind monastic cooking, at any rate, actually are in line with many of our ideas about eating simply and eating well today. Andrew Yotishki, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Andrew Yotishki is a professor of medieval history at Lancaster University in the UK. It sounds as if these guys were being trendy without even realizing what trendy meant. Isn't it interesting, though, that the basis of the monk's diet that he described is what's eliminated in the paleo diet? A lot of bread, grains, no meat. Paleo diet has a lot of meat. Uh, and they both had fish, but these monks seemed to do pretty well on a diet that was not the paleo diet. Yes, yes. Uh, clearly, they lived a long time. They seemed to be healthy as far as we know. You know, what it suggests is maybe it isn't so much that you adopt one diet or another, but that you just adopt a diet. There was a key word there in that interview, and that is moderation that the monks ate in moderation and they exercised self-control. And also that the monks, as he said, before 1100, they ate when there was not a time of plenty. Well, at least in the Western world, abundance would be the description of the sort of food we have in front of us. They were motivated to live this austere lifestyle, and I don't see that too often today. Right. These days, we're all letting out our rope belts. They were, <laughs> they were pulling them in. So maybe the modern-day paleo diet is just the latest wrinkle in a long line of culinary wrinkles with the idea of improving our behavior. And it may sound perfectly reasonable, but what about those health aspects? Can we be confident that our paleo ancestors were actually healthier? Well, their paleo dentists would have been pleased about some things. For hunter-gatherers in general, it was thought that serious tooth decay was rare because 32-ounce sodas were yet to come, and our ancestors gnawed on bones and munched on tubers rather than filling their plates with french fries and bread. So archaeologist Louise Humphrey and her team at the Natural History Museum in London were surprised to discover that in the analysis they did on the remains of 50 Paleolithic hunter-gatherers from a cave in Morocco, more than 90% had severe problems, dental problems. She says they would have been in pain, teeth cracked, a mouthful of dental cavities or caries, infected swollen gums. In short, nothing to smile about. Louise, Paleolithic diets are certainly au courant, but you know, how would you define a paleo diet? I don't think there was one paleo diet. People are very opportunistic and they would have made the most of the resources wherever they happened to live. Okay, so the Paleolithic diet, to the extent that there really was one, and it sounds like there wasn't one, it was just whatever you ate wherever you were, but that sort of went out the door when agriculture was invented, which is, after all, on the order of 10,000 years ago or so. Suddenly we were eating grains and starches. Our health, as well as the condition of our teeth, presumably suffered because we weren't wired up for that kind of diet. So it's become trendy to suggest that we return to our roots, maybe literally speaking, that we, <laughs> that we honor our genomes by chowing down on the foodstuffs that the hunter-gatherers ate. But you've uncovered some reasons to believe that this actually is not necessarily a very good idea. Yes, I don't think what we've unraveled changes the fact that eating processed carbohydrates is bad for our teeth. I think what we've shown here is that some populations in the Paleolithic were eating sufficient quantities of sugar-rich carbohydrate foods to affect their teeth badly as well. Now, where did you get this idea? You made, a, you made a find, actually, an archaeological find. Tell us about that. We've been working with a population who lived in Morocco during the Paleolithic. The skeletons we've been looking at are of people who lived 15,000 years ago. Unusually, these people actually buried enough of their dead to have a cemetery, and so we have a large sample of teeth to look at and study. We study burials from a cave in North Morocco, and the people there were living about 15,000 years ago, and much to our surprise, they do have very bad caries. In other words, they have holes in their teeth. They have terrible holes in their teeth, really large carious lesions spreading between teeth. Some of them have dental abscesses. 
of the population we looked at, we looked at 52 adults. Only three individuals showed no sign of caries at all. So what you're saying here is that uh, these people's paleolithic diet, because that's what they were eating by definition, was certainly not good for their teeth. Of course, that doesn't say anything about whether they were overweight or had other health problems, but bad teeth you wouldn't have expected. We didn't expect them to have such bad teeth. There are two reasons why people in the past may not have had bad teeth. One is that they didn't have a diet that encouraged carbohydrate-fermenting bacteria to thrive in the mouth. The other possibility is that those bacteria simply weren't there and that they've evolved since in our mouth. It's not yet clear whether or not the particular destructive bacteria that we have in our mouths were around 15,000 years ago. But what we can say from this population is they must have had some cariogenic bacteria. Okay, bad teeth. Uh, what were they eating? What was their diet? Any idea? When I first looked at the teeth, I thought they must have been eating something really sweet and sticky. And the first thing we thought about were figs. But in fact, figs were not domesticated at that time and were not very nice to eat. My colleague studied the macrobotanical remains in great detail. Those are tiny little fragments of charred plant remains that we found in the archaeological sediments. And he identified 22 different species of plants that were being used by the people. The most abundant wild plant food we found were acorns. The type of acorn we find in North Africa is a sweet acorn that can be eaten without extensive processing. And that's what we think we're responsible for the caries. Acorns. Well, it, 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 this sounds like a, you know, a very painful price to pay for, for the sweet acorns. No dental care, but plenty of dental caries. Uh, you know, at, what was the average life expectancy back then? How long would you have to suffer with these bad teeth? We don't know exactly how long these people would have lived because they may have aged quite differently to us. We do know that even in quite young adults, individuals have very extensive tooth decay. And so once the caries became established, it seemed to spread quite quickly through the dentition. My goodness, what a terrible existence. So it's... <laughs> <laughs> the people, of course, would not have known that the acorns caused the caries. Acorns would have been quite convenient packages of food that could be collected and potentially stored. Um, we think they must have been eating them quite frequently to cause such bad teeth. Well, they must have been abundant. Were there other paleo diets that you're aware of used by peoples, perhaps not in Morocco, that would have been better for your teeth? Probably raw vegetables, hard nuts, obviously foods that are neither sticky nor sugary, but I think it's important to have a diverse and balanced diet with plenty of fresh foods, generally, for your health. Well, then, finally, Louise, I've got to ask you, have you ever tried the paleo diet yourself? Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> and, and, and it sounds like you're not, uh, you're not keen to. I don't think I need to. I have a healthy diet. I'm perfectly happy with my health without having to uh, completely cut out agricultural produce. I personally don't believe in the paleo diet. I think it's important to eat a very varied diet. If you want to eat paleo diet, I think you should be willing to eat snails and insects. If you're going to eat an animal, chew the cartilage, eat the stomach contents, eat the bone marrow and the organs and the whole lot, because that's what the paleo diet would have involved. Certainly sounds tasty. <laughs> Louise Humphrey, thank you so much for talking with us. All right, bye-bye. Louise Humphrey is an archaeologist at the Natural History Museum in London. So it sounds as though our cave-dwelling ancestors who were on the paleo diet, which they wouldn't have called the paleo diet, they would have called it food, could have made paleo dentists pretty wealthy. And I'm picturing there the indoor caves, swimming pools, the expensive cars. But eating acorns aside, how strong is the science behind this diet overall? I guess the wheel would have had to have been invented for them to have expensive cars. Yes, well, the wheel was invented sometime there, but I'm not quite sure exactly when. At any rate, on the paleo diet, an evolutionary biologist and author of Paleo Fantasy weighs in. It's Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science.
With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, the big picture look at the paleo diet. I mean, let's forget the acorns. We don't need to destroy our teeth with those, and you don't want to do that either. And no one is suggesting that you eat raw meat or that you hunt the game down yourself. As Lauren Cordain said, the paleo diet is based on plants, vegetables, some meat, no grains, though, or dairy. But the reasoning behind the diet springs from evolution. The idea is that the genes of our hunter-gatherer ancestors were perfectly adapted to their environment. They'd had millions of years, after all, to get the two in sync. But should we assume that we are today genetically identical to our ancestors then? Paleo Fantasy is the book of evolutionary biologist Marlene Zook. What evolution really tells us about sex, diet, and how we live. Marlene, the appeal of the paleo diet is based in this idea that the modern world has made us fat and inactive. And, you know, it does seem as though somewhere along the line, something went wrong. So why isn't this diet the corrective? Well, the diet may well be. And, and so the first thing I want to say is I'm not trying to tell people what they should or shouldn't eat. And if they're, they found something to eat that makes them happy and feel good, then they should go with that. But this basic idea that we are terribly at odds with our environment because we evolved to eat a certain way or to exercise a certain way or to live a certain way, and now we've fallen from grace, as it were, is, I think, not a really accurate way to look at either how evolution works or at how we should best you know, live in our, in our own environment. So the proponents who suggest that we should be eating lean meats, nuts, and vegetables, there's nothing unhealthy about that. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Nothing wrong. You know, and, and also it's not to suggest that therefore, because, you know, times have moved on and now we have Cheetos and Diet Coke, that we should all live on Cheetos and Diet Coke. I mean, that's that's not the appropriate response. It's more that this basic premise, as you say, you know, that, oh, something's gone terribly wrong, because contained within that is that there's some right way of doing things that's the best way for our bodies or that's the best way for us to think about things or the best way for us to raise our children. And I've been interested for a long time in how people think about evolution and how it applies to their lives and how they live based on what our ancestors did and, and so forth. And I think there's this kernel of, of basic misunderstanding about how evolution works contained in that idea that what we're doing is we're starting out with stuff that, well, it's not really very evolved, and then it evolves and evolves and evolves, and it kind of gets better, sort of like as, as you're making something in a workshop and you carve out all the bits that don't work or you put in parts that are more efficient, and you end up with something that, aha, this is really perfect, this is the way it's supposed to be. But of course, that's not how evolution works at all. Everything that's alive now is just as evolved as everything else that's alive now, because we're all continually changing and the gene pool is changing and there isn't this goal where you end up in perfect harmony with your environment. Now, one of the arguments, though, in support of this idea that we should eat the way that our ancestors did or our hunter-gatherer ancestors did is that that was 10,000 years ago, a relatively short time in the scale of human evolution, and we haven't changed much. How genetically similar are we to our early ancestors? It turns out that the question of how much our genes have changed is a much more complicated one to answer than you might think. And I'm doing that not to just, you know, weasel out of answering directly, but because when you talk about genetic change, you have to 
talk about some scale. So, you know, for instance, there's this really popular thing of, oh, we're 98% like chimpanzees. Well, that's true. But at the same time, you know, and you think, oh, well, things that are 98% similar are like super similar, right? That's that's practically similar enough to be identical. But, you know, you see a chimpanzee on the street, you really don't have trouble telling them from a person. And so the point I'm getting to is, so if you're 98% like a chimpanzee, but the differences are incredibly vast in terms of function and what we're doing, then you could say, all right, well, maybe we've changed only very slightly from what we were like 10,000 years ago, but it's all in where those changes have occurred. And those changes could still be incredibly crucial to the way we're living and the way our bodies function. But can you get much change in 10,000 years? You bet. You can get lots of change in 10,000 years. And, and one of the things that's really exciting now about evolutionary biology is that scientists are starting to discover you can see what are called signatures of selection in the genome. So you can look at people's genes and tell how there are differences that arrived through selection even a handful of generations ago. And the, the best example of that, of course, is uh, lactose uh, tolerance. So drinking milk is one of those things that we know um, our ancestors didn't do. Like other mammals, humans, um, of course, grow up drinking milk. And then all other mammals become unable to digest lactose, which is the sugar in milk, because they lose lactase, the enzyme that you use to break it up. All right. And so that happens around weaning. And so, you know, well, you're not drinking milk anymore, so it doesn't really matter. But in humans, what we think has happened, and this story has actually been reconstructed with remarkable precision over the last just few years, what, what looks like happened is that people were herding cattle, um, say, five to 7,000 years ago. And they were doing it not for milk or you know, dairy products. They were doing it for meat and hides. So they were getting that benefit from it. But then you just say that somebody in the population had a genetic variation that permitted them to continue to consume milk past weaning. And they, they didn't, there wasn't, you know, it was just a random mutation, just these things, you know, occur in people as well as other kinds of organisms. So they just happened to have that difference. But that difference gave them an advantage because they had a food source as well as some people speculate an uncontaminated source of fluid that allowed them to live, you know, better. They were healthier. They got more calories. They didn't get exposed as much to the diseases that are carried in contaminated water and so forth. And so those people with their genes managed to have more kids who carried their genes. That then selected for more herding cattle, and you get this feedback process where the gene for being able to digest dairy spreads through populations where cattle herding was important. Our so genes have changed. Are there other examples of that, and does it work the other way? In that there might be some things that the, the cavemen, the hunter-gatherers ate that today we can't eat. I don't know of anything. There's certainly things that they that we don't eat as much, but there's lot. There are a lot to get back to your, the first part of your question. There's lots of examples of other genetic changes that we see, partly in diet. So, for instance, there's um, more copies of the amylase gene, which is used to digest starch in populations where starch is a part of the diet. And you know that wouldn't have been the case 10,000 years ago if people weren't relying as heavily on starches. Although, and this is probably leading into you know what you wanted to talk about next, although it's also turning out that maybe early humans didn't eat as little in the way of grains and starches as some people might think. Well, you did an anticipate my next question, because that was going to be about the effects of modern agriculture. The idea, again, with the, those who support the paleo diet, um, but not just those who support the paleo diet, other researchers as well, have said that modern agriculture really screwed up our, our diet, basically, and that you know the root of all health ills came from that moment when we started to uh, grow wheat and have dairy farms and so forth. Yeah, I mean, agriculture is a huge, huge change in human history. Absolutely. I don't think anybody's contesting that. It, it affects everything from the size of population you can support because when you have stored products, stored crop products, then you can feed a lot more people. And so people had bigger families. They had more kids. That affects the social system. I mean, it, it changes things in a very profound way. It changes the way diseases are spread. If you're sedentary as opposed to nomadic, then you uh, are subject to a different set of diseases. What, I, what I'm interested in is this implicit assumption that somehow there's a way that would have been doing things that's right, and then something like agriculture is kind of a mistake. And a mistake implies that you would have done it right to do some other 
thing. And I think the problem is, well, how far back are you going to take that? So, for instance, you know, being bipedal, you know, walking on two legs is not hugely beneficial in some respects. It makes it difficult to give birth to children. The size of the pelvic girdle makes it difficult to give birth to large brain children. It's, you know, thought that it might be implicated in some of our problems with, you know, back pain and, uh, you know, other sorts of joint difficulties. You certainly can't run as fast as you could if you were on four legs. But, you know, you can't just sort of mourn like, oh, it was just such a mistake for people to have become bipedal. I mean, that ship has sailed. It's, it's not really productive, it seems to me, to think about, oh, there would have been this really great path where we would have stayed in the trees or we would have been on four legs or, you know, something like that. <laughs> everything in evolution, and I think this is really at the core of what I got interested in, is that everything in evolution has costs and benefits. And yes, it's interesting to understand how there can be a mismatch between the way we're living now and the way we might have been living, you know, a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand years ago. But that, to me, is a really different approach than saying we've somehow fallen from grace because we were progressing toward this goal. Let's come back to the subject of grains. Um, you said that uh, there are costs and, and benefits to each development and how evolution shapes us. And let's let's apply that to grains because that is a source of controversy. Many people believe that our, our diet is poorer if we're eating wheat and so forth. And yet you said even earlier, that it's not true necessarily that um, hunter-gatherers did not eat grain. So what is the story of grain? Is it good for us or not? Oh, I think, you know, it's one of these things where, from a scientific perspective, you can't possibly give just a single answer to that. You know, anthropologists are discovering all the time that early humans did a lot more things than we thought, and their lives were more complex than we might have thought. And one of those things is that they seem to have processed grains in a way that I don't think people realized even a couple of decades ago. So there was a discovery made of uh, early human population uh, in Europe that was uh, grinding up the seeds of a, a plant that's similar to, to modern cattail, so the ones that grow near marshes, and they were mixing it with water and sort of rolling it out into this flattened thing. That the, it, All the, the coverage of it, they always said it was a kind of pita, um, and clearly that was the only way that anyone could, could come up with an analogy to it, or you know, they said like you know crackers or something like that, and so they were sort of baking them into a primitive sort of bread. And so, you know, how much of their diet was it? We don't really know. But it it certainly suggests that this idea that, oh, either hunter-gatherers or early humans of whatever, you know, stripe were solely subsisting on meat or they were solely subsisting on meat and a few types of, you know, roots that they could gather or something like, you know, may not have been accurate. Finally, it sounds like a lot of the the appeal of the paleo diet is wrapped in a nostalgia for a simpler time, one in which humans were ideally adapted to their environment. Um, How could we, I mean, there's obviously something has gone wrong with the modern environment, given some of our health problems. How can we today in the 21st century be in harmony with our environment? What should we be doing? I think we need to take a really thoughtful approach to what exactly it is that we think we were adapted for. And I think this is why it's it's important to not just say, oh, we were perfectly adapted then because we weren't in, in you know some respects. It's more helpful to say, all right, what things do we know don't work for us? And one of them is, for example, is we don't move at all compared to the way our bodies evolved for a really long time. We're spending an enormous amount of time sitting, and that's not very good for us. And, you know, so so you can draw some pretty basic principles. Does that mean we, instead of sitting, need to, I don't know, go out and start, you know, trying to chisel rocks to make stone tools? Well, no, I'm, you know, you can be walking around the mall and that's still moving, even if early humans didn't have malls. So there's lots of ways in which you can abstract this and think about the very basics that are good for humans and that allow us to get out of some of what lots of people call these evolutionary mismatches without necessarily trying to emulate the life of a caveman. Marlene Zook, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks a lot for having me. Marlene Zook is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Minnesota. Her book is Paleo Fantasy, What Evolution Really Tells Us About Sex, Diet, and How We Live. Many points have been made in this hour looking at the paleo diet, and it would seem that there's no dispute with the diet itself in broad terms, eat more vegetables, eat more fruit, and so forth. But if you're basing it on this idea that our genes now are the way that our genes were then as hunter-gatherers, 
That idea is flawed. Well, it sounds like it is. To begin with, there were various paleo diets, I'm sure. I mean, if you lived on the coast, you ate something different than if you, you know, were deep in the, in the interior. But not only that, our genes have changed that example of uh, adaptation to milk is a good example of that. So we're changing all the time. Our genes have changed because the substances that we were eating had benefit. In the case of grains, it may have been that some of those hunter-gatherers were eating grains. Maybe if we eat enough cookies and fries and sodas, whatever makes up the modern diet, the modern Western diet that will develop genes that will make those foods adaptive. Well, presumably, if there's some selection, that is to say, if you go on the all-fast-food diet, some people will be adapted to that. They will preferentially reproduce, and maybe 100 generations from now, everybody will be eating that, and they'll be healthy with it. (laughs) They'll be adapted for supersized fries. Yes, indeed. But it's interesting that the paleo diet, as attractive as it may be to many people, cannot feed the world. We've had 10,000 years of agriculture. It's allowed the population of the planet to grow enormously, and you can't feed them all the paleo diet. So somebody's going to have to decide if this is really the better diet. Is it only going to be the people who can afford it that get it? A couple ideas that have come through consistently in this last hour, eat less, eat more vegetables, move around more. Yeah, well, that's probably a good idea, whether you're paleo or or you're not. And I'm not. (laughs) Whether you're from the Stone Age or the Space Age. Many people have said I'm from the Stone Age. (laughs) Okay, well, what would you call the diet if you eat a lot of vegetables during the week, you have some fish, then as the week goes on, you get more tired, you have burritos and chips, and then around 4 o'clock on a Friday, you have M&M's. Yeah, well, that sounds like a very realistic diet, if not a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the, the radio producer's diet or the anyone-on-a-deadline diet. Yeah, well, pass the candy. The members of our production team are quite evolved, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Gabriel Alvarado. Also, support from Google and Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Skeptic Check Paleo Diet. And if you have an appetite for more Big Picture Science and more Skeptic Check, you'll find it on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you might find and download our Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because it's a bit more paleo, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show. How is over-the-air radio a little more paleo? Well, it's quite a bit older as a technology. Mmm, this acorn salad looks delicious, Grog. Sure does. Ow! It's okay, it's only molar. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.